Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 7 together. As you're turning there, I just want to welcome you. If you are either visiting with friends or family or you just walked in, you have no idea why you're here, welcome. We're so glad you're here uh, worshiping with us or hearing the word for the first time, perhaps. Either way, um, we're so glad you're here to be together. I also want to remind you on Thursday night this week, um, we will be having our last of our apologetics class going on. Dan Carlson will be presenting the reliability of the Bible. So I'd encourage all of you, like if you're not listening right now, listen. Come on Thursday night and be part of this. This is to equip you, to prepare you, both to worship and also to live in the world that God has called us to. Apologetics is not about winning arguments. It's about the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the gospel and seeing worshipers made by the proclamation of the gospel. So join us on Thursday night, 7 o'clock here at the building. If for some reason you have a really, really, really good excuse you can't be here, you can watch it on the live stream, but we'd ask you to come enjoy that time together. It will pay off, I promise you that. The conversations that happen amongst us are very valuable and be helpful for your growth in Christ. So enjoy and enjoy that and welcome you to come. Um, okay, let's look at our text together. We are in Ecclesiastes 7. What I'm going to do is read the first 14 verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in together. This is Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. This is God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face of the heart, sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise man into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we come before you as your people. In one sense, 
bubbling over with thankfulness and joy that Jesus Christ has given us new life, that we are promised the resurrection, that our sins have been forgiven, that you took those that were still sinners and against you, enemies, and made them sons. So this, we rejoice in these truths. And yet we gather together this morning, Lord, not as though we were untouched by all the things that are hard in this life. Sorrow, vexation, pain, suffering, and of course, death. I pray this morning that we would listen to your messenger right here in Ecclesiastes, preach the truth to us. That we would see that all of these things, all of these things are included in your plan and design. And thus, we should not look to you and say, foul, but rather say, you are a good and gracious king. Would you teach us then this morning to humbly bow to you, to love you? Lord, I pray that your word would change us and that we might reflect Christ both to our neighbors, our families, and bring honor and glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I think most of us have probably experienced that reality can be pretty brutal, like brutally honest, brutally difficult. Life is not what you see on TV most times. It's hard. Uh, it's the things that you want to escape for a little while. You don't want to deal with everything constantly that's going on. You don't want to live in the world that uh, is the one that we have right now. You'd like to be living in something that suits you a little bit better. And of course, there are many ways that this manifests itself and how we react to such a thing. We look around us and say, man, I've got to escape this somehow. I've got to get out of this. Back in 2010, Christopher Nolan, of course, directed the movie, that sci-fi thriller, Inception. Uh, a huge blockbuster hit, uh, but it proposed the possibility of offering people a different reality, one where they could escape into in vivid dreams and reality that was kind of of their own making not the one that they were grounded to in real life in flesh and blood. The movie, of course, has far more sophisticated premise and plot, but included in this idea, the, in the idea of enjoying the dreams as life, as if that was the best thing to go after. People were offered another reality, one that is far better than their current reality, one that was of their own making. And if you remember, there's a short, a short section in the film where it shows all these poor people who have nothing and living terrible existences, and they pay someone to put them to sleep so that they might be able to enjoy the dream, the vivid imaginations, and escape the reality that they're actually living in. Reality is truly sometimes miserable, undesirable. We don't want it. Better to go to the house of vivid dreams in a sense. But there's another way of illustrating this. I can remember the first time that I saw this was walking up to Mount Trashmore and I saw a group of LARPers. Not sure if you've seen this before. Um, it's a group of young adults. It doesn't have to be, but this is what it was. Congregated on the grass there in front of the park, uh, dressed up in an incredible regalia. Um, there was maroons and deep greens and gold filigree and uh, capes and shields and swords and all kinds of interesting things. Um, I don't know if you've seen something like this. At one point, a sword fight broke out between two guys. They were a, a foam sword and a, a, like a cardboard shield. Um, while others looked on, distressing and making concerned groans and oh, this and that. Dramatic concern, of course. 
If you're not familiar with LARPing, it's L-A-R-P, that's live action role play. Kind of looks a lot of times like people are walking out of a Renaissance fair. Um, but maybe some of you do this and enjoy it, and that's great. This is just for the sake of illustration here, okay? No judgment. A person can live through the medieval period, not in word and deed necessarily, but maybe through books or watching movies or through LARPing. We can make this happen if enough of us get together and pretend that that is reality for a moment. Sometimes an invented reality is more attractive to us than the one that we are living day in and day out. There's a problem that we all face in this life. It's the fact that hard stuff happens to everybody, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have. It does not matter. No matter how American you are, everyone has difficulties and problems. Stuff that we don't like, stuff that we really don't want to deal with, stuff that makes us sad or angry or hurt or embarrassed or causes us to do things that we just don't want to do. I mean, no one likes to be disappointed. No one likes to have their expectations shattered of what they thought it was going to be. No one likes it when their version of the world just isn't as good as what they had believed it would actually be. No one, of course, we would all agree, enjoys when people that we love die. If we were to pick up the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and we were to just go to chapter 7, if you just plopped down there, hadn't read anything before, and you just started in chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, you might think that the writer of Ecclesiastes is obsessed with death. He is like the, as this flair for the morbid, in a sense, as though he has some sort of dark, pessimistic, morose personality. I mean, in our past today, think about this. It talks about the day of death, better than the day of birth, better than the day of birth, uh, or it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Or get this, sorrow is better than laughter. It's the Bible telling us this. Sorrow is better than laughter. Look, the wise person should be familiar with mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning. Now, if you're with us last week, though, this really sounds kind of strange and really far out. You'd kind of be a bit surprised because when we were in chapters 5 and 6 last week, we were seeing how good it was to enjoy God's wonderful good gifts. If you remember in verse 20, kind of the center of that passage, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We talked a lot about pursuing joy. And now here we are, death, sorrow mourning. In chapter 7, the reader will think that maybe a whole new person came in, swiped Kohelet's pen and just started writing down their own things about death and difficulty and sorrow. And then Kohelet came along, give me that back. And he started writing again. Or maybe that he is some sort of schizophrenic person and like a bipolar disorder. And he's like, just from one here on this side. And then he swings way over here and he's doing this. If you read 5, 6, and 7, you're like, whoa, where is he going with all this? Last week, Kohelet, again, that's the one who is writing here, probably in your text it's called the preacher or the teacher, the one who calls together for wisdom. Kohelet calls us last week to find joy in God's good gifts, like food and drink and toil, work. But we have to ask, what about all the other times in life? What about all when things don't go so well? What about when there's a darker side of life? What happens when death comes to you? Today we're going to look at what's happening here, and we're going to see that it is foolish. 
it is foolish to run away from difficulty and adversity. It's foolish to try to escape the harshness of life. It's foolish to try to make yourself your own reality when the one that's staring in the face is the one that's actual. So what we want to do, rather, is turn and hear the wisdom speaker tell us what is true, what we ought to pursue, what is wise, and even, as he says, what will preserve our life. If you remember back to chapter 3, there's that wonderful eight-verse poem right at the beginning, the one that gets used by all kinds of different people about time. In the first verse, he says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Guys, that includes the time for adversity and trouble and difficulty, for weeping and mourning, times that really are not desirable. Whether we like it or not, these things are part of God's design for humanity right now. Thus, for us to try to escape adversity is a denial of reality, and it will only end in greater hardship for us. I've entitled today's sermon, Embracing Death, because I think it will be the defining characteristic of wisdom in this passage. Now, I thought of like something like embracing the darkness or Christian goths, uh, but I decided that was a little bit too sensational and maybe distracting. So we're going to stay with this idea that Kohelet is teaching, embracing death and hardship. I could also say embracing reality. Let's start with the first four verses here in our text. If you look here, you'll see and you'll notice that these aren't quite the same way that we are reading the rest of the book so far. All of a sudden, we're going from you know, a flowing dialogue to short, choppy statements that are very quick. There are maxims or proverbs or wisdom sayings that explain life in short, contrastive statements. Sometimes you'll know exactly what they mean right away. Other times it's going to take a little bit more work. You're going to have to actually think about the context and what he could be saying as he pins these different proverbs up one against the another. So let's take a look at verse 4. Let me read these first four verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, when you first look at this, it's very Proverbs-esque. You've probably heard something very much like this. It highlights this idea of a good name or a good reputation, right? But this reading isn't just saying that that's a good thing. That would be like a collection of several different things. But as we continue to read on, we realize that that is just too simplistic for him only to be talking about a good reputation or a good name. Especially when we read the rest of the place down here, it's talking about the day of death, the day of birth. So you got good name and precious ointment. You got the day of death and the day of birth. So rightly, as, as Bible readers, we're thinking, what's the connection here? Why are you talking about a good name and precious ointment? Now, all of a sudden, the death and the day of birth. Most of, us think, uh, most of us wouldn't think about this in our own time period, but I'm guessing for the original reader, they wouldn't have this disconnect in this verse. In a culture where embalming wasn't the normal practice, you got to remember this, a dead person would be prepared for burial with these precious ointments, these costly things that would come along and be used to help sometimes preserve from somewhat decay, but also for the sake of the smell, just giving this last thing to those that are being uh, uh, buried. 
And when a person died, uh, expensive spices would often be used to help the body. But they didn't last very long. I mean, they would help. I mean, you think about how strong some of these spices that would come from far off lands were very expensive, very luxurious. They would be very strong and help that idea and the, the smell to be overcome, but they would not last forever and they cannot stop the decay of a dying body or a dead body. No matter how much money was available to a person, no matter how many spices in a sense and precious ointments that were applied, they could only do so much. But a good name, a good name, a good reputation at the time of death, now that's something that could live on for years and years and years. Where long ago the spices and precious ointments have lost their smell long ago, but someone's name and the memory of who they are has outlasted them by decades or maybe even centuries. It doesn't take a believer, though, think about this, it doesn't take a believer to understand that you or I may live 70 or 80 years, but if you've lived well, your reputation, your good name could go on for a very long time after you. So this isn't really an explicit Christian teaching. The world understands this. But it does bring us two things today into our passage. First of all, it actually brings us into the discussion about the end of things, death but it also calls us to question what even secular man asks about our reputation, our names, what is known. So I'll ask you, do you care about your own reputation? Do you care about the things that have gone on that will it pass on after you are dead? Will your character and your reputation outlive you? Maybe even only for a little while. And right, so here's where the divergence happens. That's, that's a good question for everyone in the world. My question is a Christian question, though. I'm not so concerned that you just have a reputation, especially not one for yourself. What I'm concerned to ask you about is, what kind of a reputation do you have? What will live on past the grave for you here amongst the living? What will people know of you? If you were to die today, what would people say about you? What would they say about your name, about the experiences that they have had with you? If everyone in your life, so church members, family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, bosses, teachers, everyone, if all of them were asked to describe what they knew about you as a person after you're dead, what would they say? This is where Kohelet brings us, to really consider death and all that it kind of sums up a life in order for us to properly live well. So I'll ask you, are you living for the glory and honor of Christ's great name? Or are you simply living for yourself? A good name is better than precious ointment. Now the first saying here gives way to the second in verse 1, but then it continues all the way through verse 4, kind of as a unit and a subject together. He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better for, uh, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, it would be easiest for us to just think that this writer is morose and depressed and fascinated with death. He's some sort of frustrated old curmudgeon and he has some sort of a death wish and he's pro-suicide. But that's not really what he says at all. 
we need to consider what he's putting together here. He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. He did not say that death is better than life. The Christian ethic, the scriptures, everything within the Bible tells us that that's not true. Death is not better than life. We know that in fact the death is a result of the curse. It's the final enemy to be destroyed. It is a great evil. So why would the Bible here be telling us that the day of death is better than the day of birth? And we know that birth, honestly, is such a wonderful thing. We rejoice in it, and rightly so. We celebrate together when babies are born. We even do it annually after that happens. Until you're an old man, you're still still celebrating that first day that you were born on your birthday. There's good things. It's a good thing to do. We give gifts and talk about the potential future, and we eat food together on special occasions. What a joy. So why would he say that the day of death is actually better? In verse 2, he goes on and says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, what he's saying here is that it's better to go to a funeral home than to go to some sort of place more like a comedy club or a bar and grill and get together where, for a local trivia night, maybe at the bar and grill where you'd enjoy time with friends. I don't know about you, but mourning is not my favorite thing to do. It's not what I choose to do with my free time, is go be sad about the end of life. Think about death, decay, the end of a person's existence, finality. Not really things that I turn to in my free time. Listen to verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. I mean, this one is really kind of forthright. Not the house of sorrow, not the, the day of sorrow. He just straight up says, sorrow is better than laughter. I thought Kohelet was all about joy, rejoicing and finding your lot from God to be a good thing that you could smile about in a sense. Sorrow is better than laughter? Really? Is he really saying that we should be sad? That we should be a downtrodden people? Depressed looking people who are constantly filled with sorrow? Because obviously sorrow is better than laughter. Look at verse 4. He continues this thought. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Finally, he says that this is actually connected to something we understand. Wisdom. Let's pull back for a minute and think about this section. He's not describing what our lives should look like. He's not giving us a plan for how we should act in front of one another. He's not advocating some sort of a life that's dominated by a bleak, dreary, sad disposition. He's not saying that we should look for death as soon as possible. He's not pro-death in that sense. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, that sorrow is better than laughter, and that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. When we pull these four verses together, we see that what he's actually trying to do is give us perspective. He's trying to give us a wise perspective. He contrasts things so that we understand there are options for us in our living, in our daily choices. These things are before us. And he's trying to show us by contrast what is wise. He knows that our natural tendency, if we're all put on the spot, is to gravitate to things that we like, things that are easy, 
things that are pleasurable in some way, celebrating newborn babies, partying in celebrations, entertainment, good times, drinks with friends, uh, comedians who have really good material that can relieve us from all the stresses of life. As my son once described, the best way to live would be one day when I grow up to go to hotels, jump on beds, and eat candy. <laughs> that was the way. That was good living, the way to get away from the stresses of life. In this passage, he's not advocating a dark, pessimistic life, but rather encouraging us to embrace the harsh realities that every one of us have to deal with in reality. He's not so much advocating for this, but helping us to deal. Listen to how he explains it in verse 2. This is gonna, let's, let's peel us apart, right? Not only does he say that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, he goes on to say that this is the end of all mankind. In other words, to turn your eyes away from the house of mourning uh, and death and finality is really to deny reality as though somehow it's never going to happen to me or I shouldn't have to pay attention to it. It's going to happen to every single one of us on the face of the earth. And the wise person, the one who is still alive, will lay this truth to heart. If you've read that little book I, I've talked about, Dave Gibson's book called Living Life Backwards, that's his, one of his biggest takeaways here, is that if we are going to live life properly, we must understand death, its finality. And only then will we properly live the life that God has given to us. Every single person needs to think about their mortality, about their death. They need to know and consider the death that will come to them. Verse 3 kind of has a similar explanation. If you see it there, it says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So maybe it's not on the surface what we thought it was. Sorrow is better than laughter. Oh man, I think I know what that means. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Man, the only way that makes sense is by doing what verse 2 says and laying the idea of death and mortality to heart, to applying it to my living. And amazingly, in the midst of all this darkness, do you realize what he's actually advocating for? A heart of gladness that makes the heart glad? Contrary to what the world might think or what we might default to, true gladness doesn't come from partying or comedy or ignoring the difficulties of life and escaping to our lake house to get the good life going. Rather, he tells us that embracing sorrow and death and mourning and difficult will inform us about the serious realities of life, and it will help us then to live our lives with our eyes wide open. Only then can we actually be truthfully, eternally glad. Good times with friends and comedy and celebrations and Netflix and food and laughter are all good things, guys. They're all good things. But if this is the house that you regularly turn to, you may be subtly turning your vision off. You may be blinding yourself to the realities that we live in. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, do you ever give in to escapism? Escaping the reality that's so hard and terrible that you do not like. Trying to deal with the difficulties that we face day after day with maybe less important, less real, more fun things. Is the house of mourning and sadness 
just too real for you to deal with? Are your relationships too difficult for you to handle? Are your expectations of this life that you had built up your whole life wrong? Have they been broken? And so you don't want to deal with the bad stuff of life. Do you medicate yourself with food, with laughter, with entertainment, maybe with video games? Maybe it's more noble. You escape with the busyness of work. Or maybe you're really industrious or serving or having relationships where you're helping others. Maybe it's darker. Do you escape to alcohol and drugs or perhaps pornography or trashy literature, whether it's in book form or media post? The author is reminding us that the wise person will not escape reality. The wise person will not medicate themselves away from the truth but they will deal with the difficulties of life head on. This is the way of wisdom. In verse 5, he moves on from the topic of death to a more general discussion on hard things. He says this, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now the song of fools here, I mean, it sure is fun. I mean, it is a good time. It is just something that can make you feel good, make you feel like uh, you're not being judged, not being convicted. We're not only talking about songs here, of course. We're talking about time to hang out with friends, maybe some meaningless, good, empty, simple conversation that soothes you. It's an uncritical opinion of who you are. And these are your buddies. This is the song of fools. It encourages you in nothing, just makes you feel better about yourself. Kohelet says that the speech that comes from these kind of friends is like cheap, terrible kindling that flares up and dies very quickly. The song and the laughter of fools is hevel, vanity, futile, vaporous, gone like that. Instead, he calls us to hear the rebuke of the wise, in a sense, the wound of a friend, to listen to those and place ourselves under those who can lovingly and critically judge us and help us fear the Lord properly. That's what wisdom means, right? Wise friends that will rebuke you and call you to righteous living to love and fear the Lord our God. It's interesting, this is kind of the definition of Christian community, that we build one another up in love, telling each other the truth, rebuking one another under the, underneath the law of God so that we might look together to the truth and be closer and call ourselves together to actually look like Christ. This is the way of wisdom. Verse 7 highlighted the, uh, the opposite problem here. If you take a look, if a person gives in to untruthful methods, um, if a person listens to lies, they will ultimately suffer and become corrupt. It's one thing to hear the song of fools, but in verse 7 he says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. A bribe corrupts the heart. When truth reigns, when you can properly hear the rebuke of the wise, you will benefit. The advice of fools, the oppression that seeks material gain and wants to get, or those that accept bribes, this will make a person into someone who he does not wish to be. Listening to fools is not the way 
of wisdom. Not only will it end poorly financially or maybe materially here, it's also shown to be corrupt in God's eyes. So this leads us to verse 8 through 10, where our author will advocate pulling back to look at the bigger picture of the whole thing, from beginning to end particularly, to slow down and to act in a sense, if I can say it this way, as an experienced older man who has seen all the ups and downs of life and now knows how to live properly. He says this, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from, from wisdom that you ask this. Now, at first glance, this just may seem like another fatalistic statement that is encouraging us all just to end it all and be done with it. But that's not right. Again, he's giving us a proper, wise perspective. The question then we should ask is, how do you get to the end of a thing that is, if it's better than the beginning? How do we get there? By ending it all? No. Look what he says. By patience. By trusting something more important and more in charge than yourself. You and I don't know what the future holds. And when we say that we do, we actually act in pride. We act as fools when we think we know what is going to happen. And like a wise father, he tells us to be patient, not to quickly be angered. Because if we do, it says what will happen is the heart of fools, anger gets lodged there, stuck there like a burr, and it can't be removed easily. Verse 10 is an interesting little standalone sentence, but it doesn't stand alone, as we know. It's part of what he's already been saying. He says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So, it's kind of like this idea of let's look and oh, remember the good old days, the golden days of yore. They were so much better, weren't they? What he brings up here is that it's constantly thinking about the good old days is another form of foolish impatience. You're looking at what's going on right now and viewing it and thinking it's somehow lesser and not as good and somehow, maybe even somehow a little bit outside of God's control. When I look back at these days, they were so much better. That's when God was in control and giving the things that I really wanted. Foolish, right? Like we get that. That's the idea here. He's saying, no, no, it's not of wisdom that you say, do you remember the good old days? Instead, he says to be patient, to be a person of gratitude. It's not on a, it's, if, you, if you act this way, it's unfortunately another way of escaping reality. Our present time by, in a sense, living in the past. We probably all know people like this who kind of talk about things in the past over and over again. Maybe their football careers or other things that have happened in the past, things that they just wish they could live in those good old days. And they have no gratitude for what God has given to them right now. Constantly dominated by the past. So, let me ask you. Are you dominated by the fruit of the Spirit? Patience. Not pride and anger and living in the past, but patience with exactly what God has given you. It's kind of ironic that we're turning to the same things here that we did in the last chapters, but with a different focus. In the last two chapters, we were dealing with the problem of seeing all the good things that God had given and making sure that we weren't trying to gain them here on earth and hold on to them too tightly, right? But rather rejoicing. 
Here in this section, he's telling us to be careful to accept these difficulties and to do so with patience as from the hand of God. To wait for the end of things, to refrain from anger and pride that is so bound up in the here and now and forgets about the bigger picture, the end of a thing. Living in patience is the way of wisdom. Now, I've said that last little phrase over and over again throughout this time. This is the way of wisdom. Living a fool, that's not the way of wisdom. Doing this is the way of wisdom. And there's a reason for that. We're going to find here that all this wisdom is no good if you will not take it. If you will not live by it, it doesn't matter. And so what he does here in verses 11 and 12 is tells us this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You and I have an inheritance, some more than others, but you have something in some way. You and I are also those who see the sun. In other words, he's saying everyone who is alive can benefit from wisdom. And embedded here, I love this, is this little saying that helps us understand that wisdom actually has a shelf life. You see who it's for? The ones who can see the sun. It's only meant for those of us who are actually living right now. We don't get to choose to be wise once we are dead and gone. Now is the time, as we hear what is foolish and wise, to choose to be wise. And if you're not convinced, our writer gives us more. He says that wisdom can offer us protection, just like money can. Money can be used to protect us. Of course, it can buy food and maybe shelter and insurances. And wisdom can also protect us. But it actually goes further than that. It exceeds the power of money. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Not only will a wise outlook help protect you, but in the end, it will preserve your very life. Money is good. Wisdom is better. If he could scream it, he'd say, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Live wisely. Don't get money and possessions and power and all this stuff. Get wisdom. It preserves your very life. So where do you stand on this one? You've heard what the Bible says even this morning about living this way, embracing the reality of death and sorrow and struggle, that it's good to embrace mourning and it's good to be patient, that escapism and a practical denial of reality is foolishness. You've heard that this passage, in this passage, it's better to accept all these aspects of life, life, including the difficult, sobering ones. If you're to live wisely in this world, this is the way it'll be. But the question still is, guys, man, I, I kind of want to say this at the end of every time I preach for my own self. Will you do it? You've heard it. Are you going to take wisdom? Are you going to let it sit on the table? Does wisdom matter to you at all? Wisdom doesn't work in your pocket. Wisdom doesn't work staying in a book. It is for living. It is for those of us who choose to walk out an existence according to it. The wise live according to these words. Will you live wisely? Will you stop turning to Netflix or food or drink or some other version of reality that distracts you from the difficulties of your life? Will you embrace the rebuke of the wise and live according to what's really going on around you? 
Will you patiently wait and live under the sovereign hand of God who is over all parts of life? In other words, will you accept wisdom? And I get it. You may say, Chris, uh, I understand what you're saying, but you've never dealt with my life. You've never heard what I had to go through. You've never felt the things that I have felt. You're right. It doesn't seem fair that God would cause me to live a life that's so hard and so full of mourning and so difficult. Let me have my escape. Back off. Let me have my dreams. Let me have my alternate realities. Something that can soothe me and help me to muddle through somehow. I don't really like the lot that God has given to me. If this is you, listen to the final two verses here in verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Do not call God evil. Do we not recognize that all things are from his hand in complete control? that he sees the darkness as he does the light? Do you know what the future holds? Do you know what will happen the rest of your life tomorrow, the next day, the next day after that? Do you know what will happen after you die? The answer is no. No one does, except for God, the creator and redeemer alone. He is the designer. He's the judge. He's the the one that's sovereign over all things. He's the one that holds all things together. And he is our redeemer and Lord and king. Yes, I know that you don't like your lot, but if we can hear Kohelet clearly, let me ask you, who do you think is in control and who do you think will always do what is right? I recognize that this can be hard for us, but I would call you not to grit your teeth and bear it and just be like, okay, fine, God's in control but rather look to the sweetness and beauty of what he has done by crucifying the Lord, his son. You think your life is so bad? I think my life is so bad. What about the king of glory who put on flesh to ransom us? Ultimate mockery and shame, going to the cross, flesh torn, the wrath of God that you and I deserve poured out on him. Do we recognize mourning, suffering, death, loss, struggle as though somehow it's completely separate from God and he keeps it all at arm's length? Look to Christ. Look to the one who truly understands and in a sense was tempted just like us but without sin. This is our God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And let remind you, that you and I may look and see things as crooked. I mean, they may look really crooked. But I'll remind you, who are we to say what's crooked and straight? Are you and I God? Are we not mortal? Is there anyone in this room that's lived over 100 years? No. We don't know from the beginning from the end. And here we stand in front of the designer, creator, sustainer, and Lord of glory and somehow shake our fists. No, brothers and sisters. 
Rather, enjoy. Let us remember his goodness, his kindness, and his plan for his own glory and for our good. Romans 8.28 isn't just some sort of feel-good verse. It is a rock-solid anchor. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you believe that? This is his promise. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Oh man, they're transient, guys. They're fleeting. It's going away. I know it looks so real to you, but it is going away. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me just back up for a minute. We know this truth, and I can preach that to you because we sit on this side of Jesus Christ who's declared his promises to us. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, that we are found in him, that our afterlife is explained to us and we have much joy. As so many Old Testament saints, in a sense, had very little to go off of. They knew that God was good. They trusted him as the covenant Lord. They placed themselves in his hands. And guess what? That was also glorious and sufficient. But here we stand on the other side of Jesus Christ having come. And our hope is ever surer and ever truer and ever expanded. And the promises now have become bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes. I'm telling you this because we stand a different vantage point And it needs to be recognized that we have an even greater hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was he who said, if you remember in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn right? For they will be comforted. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Luke 6, 21. We are wise to go to the house of mourning, to sorrow over sad things, to experience death, to be rebuked by the wise, and to embrace reality because our hope and joy is realized, made real in Jesus of Nazareth, our resurrected Lord. In him, no matter how crooked your path seems to you, in him we find meaning and life and glory and gladness. Now, I'm not saying we should just stop all the other wonderful things that God has given to us to do. I'm just saying that we must hit our lives head on in reality, understanding that's what he's telling us to do. I'm asking us to embrace reality with both its ups and its downs. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. My final encouragement again is this. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, guys. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Without him, all hope is lost. We recognize your incredible, otherworldly, massive 
holy, glorious reality of who you are, your character is unsearchable. Your, your ways are not like our ways. And so we worship you and praise you. And we recognize, Lord, that even then that's true and you've called us to live according to the word that we've not done so. Instead, we've lived for ourselves. Lord, we need a savior. We need a blood sacrifice that could actually cover our sin and Jesus Christ is him. And so we glory in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit's work in us. And now as we continue this week, I pray that you'd give your people strength, courage in you, that you give them faith to believe that this is truth, to hit their difficulties head on. Not just to be tough, but rather, Lord, to find strength in you, to understand the way of mourning, to understand death so that we might live our lives properly before you in wisdom. We thank you for your grace and we ask for your blessing. Please bless your people, Lord. Please bless them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.